chapter together in two chunks. Let me read another little story about Jesus who cast out demons from a man. And it says, um, the man who'd been possessed by the legion of demons was sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And the people... And they told, those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. So interesting, Jesus gets asked to go away. And in this story, uh, the ark of God gets asked to go away. Anyway, we prayed. And uh, boys and girls, you're, you're sitting here this morning. Can I just see, where am I supposed to be looking for boys and girls? Over there, over there, over there, any over there? at the back. Right, I'm going to be expecting some help today, so uh, please be on the ball. Uh, This story, boys and girls, is not really suitable for you because it contains things about a terrible illness, tumours, and uh, it's also got some nasty animals in it, some not nice animals, uh, some rats uh, are in there, so it's not really suitable for children. It's also got a, a statue with his, um, with his hands, I put arms, his hands and his head cut off. So we're going to have hands being cut off and heads cut off. So mums and dads, it's not really suitable for your children, is it? Uh, and in this chapter, God says nothing. There's no word from God in this chapter. And Samuel, I don't know whether you remember, boys and girls, were you here when we talked about Samuel, uh, the, the, uh, the baby that was prayed for? And, um, and grew up, and in this chapter, Samuel, it's, the, 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 the chapter is named after him, 1 Samuel, uh, well, he's not in here either, um, and there he is, baby being turned into a, a man, and uh, you may remember, those of you here for that very first time, that Hannah prayed right at the beginning that everything would come right, and God would turn things round so that everything was the upside down or the right way up, and in this chapter, it doesn't seem to happen at all. So, interesting. Um, and grown-ups, you're here this morning listening to this chapter. And you might be expecting to hear about a God who only ever blesses people and who only ever affirms people. And here in this chapter, when, our, when God is involved with the people of Ashdod and Ekron and Gath, it's terrible for them. Uh, this The God of this chapter is a God who smites, although he doesn't smite as much as he could, but he's a God who smites. It's the God of the the Bible. Uh, You might think that we have a God who is stuck without the help of well-meaning people, that God needs a a bit of a hand all the time, and in this, God single-handedly sorts things out. This is a sovereign God who does whatever he pleases and nobody can stop him. Um, you might be thinking, particularly if uh, you've come, you don't very often come to church, that the Christian message is that uh, there are many ways to God, and all people are, are quite nice, and uh, uh, a God who says, well, there are many ways. Actually, this is not the God of the Bible. This God says, there is just me. I am unique. I am supreme, I don't have competitors, I don't give my glory to anybody else. That's the God of this chapter. 
And you might, well, I suppose most people would like today to hear a God who says, never mind, if you're true to yourself, it will all work out well in the end. And that's not what this God in this chapter says. He says, you need to be true to me. That's what, that's what I'm looking for. So it's, a very, uh, it's not really a, a suitable chapter for children, and it's a bit of a jarring chapter for grown-ups as well. Anyway, uh, let's look inside it. Oh, I, uh, one more thing. Um, a God who never shows weakness or apparent defeat. Is that the God of this chapter who never shows weakness and never shows apparent defeat? And actually... The God of this chapter does show weakness and does seem to be defeated because his ark has been captured. So lots of surprising things in this chapter, things that you, you, you might not expect. What we're going to do, uh, boys and girls, we're going to do some... Oh, it's unsuitable. But this is what God wants us to hear this morning. Uh, we'll do some homework together so you can do most of the work and I'll just flack the pointer around so... Uh, and then we'll sing something, and then we'll make some conclusions from it. So that's the plan this morning. So first of all, we're going to look at the ark. Boys and girls, if you can look across at somebody's Bible, or have a Bible in front of you, that would be really helpful. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 5, and it is, there's, a, uh, there's mention of the ark of God. The first verse says, after the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Um, now, what is the full name of the Ark of God? So, in 5 verse 1, it is the Ark of God. In verse 3, it is called... I have to be quick, or we're going to be here all morning with this. Uh, in verse 3, it is called... Somebody shout it out. The Ark of the Lord. Yeah. Uh, and in verse 7, it is called... The Ark of the God of Israel, thank you. And verse 8, it is called... The Ark of the God of Israel. And uh, the next bit of verse 8, it is called... Thank you. And the next bit of verse 8, it is called... Uh, the Ark of the God of Israel, I think. End of verse 8. Yeah, verse 10, it is called, sorry, the ark, well no, it's two ekron, the ark of God, two ekron, and then the next bit in verse 10, it is called, the okay, the ark of the God of Israel, it's also called the ark of God in verse 10, in verse 11, it's called, The Ark of the God of Israel, well done. And in 6 verse 1, it's called the Ark of the Lord. And in 4 verse 4, it is called, so let's have a grown-up tell us this one, quick as you like. 1 Samuel 4 verse 4, it is called in full. Keep going. Okay, thank you. That, that's the longest of all. It says he is, it is the Ark of the Covenant 
of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. That's the most glorious statement of the ark. So as we went through chapter 5, you see it's all about the ark, isn't it? The ark of God, the ark of the God of Israel, the ark of the Lord. Ark, 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 ark. It's all to do with the ark. Um, so let's find out what is this ark of the covenant. Uh, have I got the answer there? Anybody know what the ark of the covenant is? I'm, I'm sure you do, but roughly speaking, yeah? Yeah, it, it did have. It certainly did have the Ten Commandments. in it. Just going back... What sort of thing is it? Is it a thing on wheels? Is it a, a curtain? Is it a, what is it? Okay, it's, it's carried on poles. I was going to say it's a box. Yeah, it's a wooden box. And um, I did work this out. It's about 1.3 meters. So that's not ever so big, actually, by 0.79 meters by 0.79 meters. And I, I did on SketchUp this picture. We've got a random American guy in the picture but uh, just to give you the scale I mean it's not that big actually is it you could easily fit it onto the stage here and it's got these poles for carrying it which we'll come to in a moment what's it covered with anybody like to tell us so hands up this time anybody like to tell us what it's covered with what do you think well done gold right covered with gold so it's a very special box and what did it have on the top of it Anybody know what it had on the top of it? At the back, yes? Somebody will have to shout it out because I couldn't hear. Cherubim, Cherubim that's right. Uh, so uh, I think if you, it's a cherubim. Or cherub is the singular and cherubim is the plural. And there's two of them. And I've got a picture of them. I don't know what they look like. It says a guess. Uh, but there, were, there are some cherub-like um, sculptures in the British Museum and they're not from Israel they're from Assyria but they look like that so maybe these ones look similar to that and what are cherub what are cherub what are they and I've put that see if you can guess what I was thinking the cherubim do and I'm thinking it's like when the prime minister who is a very special person, goes anywhere. He is accompanied by some guys in suits and dark glasses, like this. Or when Joe Biden, the president of USA, goes anywhere, he's, a, he's a, accompanied by people with guns and dark glasses, and they're always look, on the lookout. So can you guess from that what I was thinking? They are his S something C something R something TY creatures. What do you think? Security, yeah. Should we just have a cumulative round of applause for all the work we've been doing? Yeah. Okay. So I think they're his, like his security officers. They're there to, to uh, take him where he wants and to guard things and to, to make sure that the wrong people don't get in. The, the cherub were in the Garden of Eden with flaming swords to stop, you know, they were on security duty there stop, to stop people getting back into the garden. Now then... See whether you know this. I'm sure boys and girls will know this. Who built the ark and when? It goes back. It has a history. It was built in the days of by somebody. So right at the back, who do you think it was built by? Or who ordered it to be built? 
I couldn't hear that, so somebody will have to shout it out for me. Moses. Yeah, that was it. Moses. Okay, a little round of applause for that. Well done. By Moses. And it was in the time of, I don't know, where, what have I put? Yeah, it was in the time of the Exodus. So when God brought his people out of Egypt, he showed them lots of things uh, and a whole load of how they were, how they were to live, how they were to um, be in relationship with God, and the ark was a, a key part of that. And where did the ark stay? Does anybody know where the ark stayed? It had a particular place where it was meant to um, be parked, if you like. I think you know this. Maybe I haven't asked the question in the right way. It was put in a certain place, certainly to begin with, in the tabernacle is right. Well done, I think. You. And the, the tabernacle was a sort of tent. Uh, so it was portable like tents are. And uh, when God took his people across the desert uh, and they camped, he camped with them and he had his own tent and he sort of lived in that tent and the ark was right in the most um, in the central part of the tent. The tent that uh, later on it got moved to the temple, but it was in the tent, uh, the place of meeting God. And uh, it was, there's all sorts of things to do with it. So priests uh, would look after it and certain people could touch the, the, uh, um, the ark and move it. And there were always sacrifices happening. So animals were always being killed and their blood was being, things were done with the blood to do with the ark. Whole system. Now then, I think we need some grown-ups to be looking this one up as well. Exodus 29.46, and my question is, why did Moses build it? Why do we have this box? Why did we have the tabernacle? Why did we have all this system of priests and sacrifices? And I hope that the answer is in Exodus 29. We took verses 44, 45, and 46. Exodus 29, 44, 45, and 46. Is somebody going to read it to us? Thank you very much. Uh, let me just add the surrounding bits. I will consecrate the tent of meeting, the altar. I will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So it, it, that's a key verse. Why did God do all that? What's all the paraphernalia about? So that God could live with his people so that there would be no distance between God and his people. So wherever they were, he would be. Um, this rings bells for us as Christians, doesn't it? Uh, the presence of God with his people. I don't know whether you noticed it, but the, the hymns we chose this morning, the songs, all had something about the presence of God. And it says, I 
brought them out of Egypt because I wanted to be with them. Which is an amazing thing, isn't it? So that God could live with his people. Now then, there's another few questions. So who could see the ark? So it's all covered with gold, so that's pretty fantastic. Who could see it and in what way? Who could see the ark and in what way? What do you think? I missed the last bit. They could see it. Giving. Okay, when they were doing the sacrifices. Yeah, the priest could see it. Yeah. Was it actually, do you think it was sort of up on a a stand so everybody could see it? No. No. Only the priests could see it. What were you going to say? It's in a specific room in the tabernacle. It's got curtains that close it off. So really, it's more or less hidden. Uh, you, you only, uh, I, th- I think I'm correct in saying, only once a year would the priest go in there. And he had to take something with him, which I think you mentioned, but do you want to have a go? Yeah, it uh, uh, certainly makes sense, doesn't it? Because he was going into a dangerous place and if he keeled over or God zapped him or something, he'd need need rescuing. Yeah, thank you. That's a good one. But I I think my question was, what did the priest take with him if he went into the holy place? Anybody, any ideas? There's something that's very important. A sacrifice. And in particular, which part of the sacrifice? The blood. Yeah, not without blood. So to, to enter into the presence of God, uh, for sinful people to enter into the presence of God, there needs to be a sacrifice made and there needs to be blood. So who could see the ark? The priests taking blood and once a year. Who could touch the ark? At the back? No one, I think is the correct answer. No one could touch it. Well done. There was, I haven't looked it up and it's not fresh in my memory, but if I remember correctly, they had to cover it and uh, they, only certain people could do that. It was their special job and they carried it. Now then, um, I think I've probably drawn something without referring to it. I put these two rings on the side and maybe you could... Just remind us, because I did mention it before, what, what these, these rings, there's two on one side and two on the other. Yeah, they, put, they, they were supposed to put a pole, pole through on either side and the Levites' special uh, group of people would carry it humanly, human, humans would carry it. So in other words, oh, I've, I've asked the, already answered the question I was just going to ask. It's like God's mobile throne. And it's carried by respectful followers. It was carried by people. So the ark, which is in this chapter, uh, we're doing a bit of homework on this. It symbolized God's presence. 
It symbolized God's presence and symbolized his protection of his people and his fellowship with his people. And it reminded people of the provisions necessary for God to dwell with people. So they needed blood to be shed. They needed to treat it respectfully uh, and reverently. And we also know the Lord liked to go with his people wherever they went, which is a really a, a wonderful thing, isn't it? Wherever they went, he would go with them. And in many cases, he would just go ahead of them. And I think that's a rather lovely thing, isn't it? The Lord likes to go ahead. He doesn't say, you stay here, I'm having a cup of coffee, you go off into the dangerous area while I'm sitting here. He says, I will go with you. And he says, in fact, actually, I'll probably go ahead of you just to make sure it's safe for you. And that's sort of principle of the, the sort of God he is. So we'll, uh, while we're on the subject of the ark, we will peep ahead in the story and go into 2 Samuel chapter 6. And again, if the grown-ups could join us in looking at that. So we're leaping ahead into 2 Samuel chapter 6. And that is what happens... So this is sort of a long throw of the, of the story from here right up to something in the future. And could anybody tell us, I've put up there, King D something, V something, D brought the ark into J something, R something, S something, L something, M. What do you think? David, Jerusalem, what do you think? What do you think, Gracie? David in Jerusalem. Is that right? Well done. A little round of applause, I think. Yeah. So the, the, the story is headed towards King David and uh, bringing the ark into Jerusalem and then King Solomon building the temple. That's where the story's headed. And it'll take a while to get there. And this is actually a really key thing to realize the idea of God's people and God's city and God's king and God's temple and God's presence that is the grand story of the Bible and if you wanted to you could say that, that, that that's it in a nutshell that's what the Christian message is all about that one day and we're throwing the ball forward as it were one day that is what God will say that was my plan all along to have my people in my city with my king reigning and myself in the midst of it all. Uh, and, and that's what glory will be. That's what the book of Revelation portrays. I mean, it'll be lots of other things as well, but that's a good way to think of it. And if you're a Christian, one day you'll be there in the holy city. Amen. With the king and in the presence of God where sin won't disturb and enemies won't get in, uh, and, and it, it will all be glory. Uh, and that's a, a view for the future. Um, we're, if, we're, if we belong to the Lord Jesus, that's what he has in mind for us. That's what he has achieved, uh, that we're on our way to the city of God, uh, where the presence of God is. Okay, that was homework on the ark. We'll just do a little bit of homework on the Philistines. Uh, so I've got a map there. Now, does the map work on a bright, sunny day? Sort of, yeah. That's the Mediterranean. That's the Dead Sea. Uh, and that, whoa, that's, that's the coast along there. Okay, the Philistines, they, in terms of the, the history, they don't seem to have been there 
in the original uh, times of Abraham. They seem to have come in later. Click. Uh, best I could find, they are seafaring people. So on the map, there's a, a blob on the coastal area where the Philistines settled. No, there's the blob. Uh, they are all the way through enemies of God's people. They're always trying to get in the way of God's purposes, and they're always trying to oppose God's king. And they had five main cities with five lords or five princes or five rulers, and they get referred to quite a bit. So there is... What's that? What have I just clicked? Well, I, I wanted Ashdod, Ashkelon. Oh, I can't read it anymore. Um, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gath, Ekron. Have I done five? Yeah, um... Oh, I didn't mean to do that. Yeah, that's the, uh, that's the place where they inhabited. And there's lots about the battles, isn't it, with the Philistines. Do you remember? Uh, no, we haven't got to that, so it's pointless saying, well, do you remember? I was going to say David and Goliath, but we haven't got to that bit yet. Uh, they have a god called Dagon. And I looked it up, and people are not sure whether it comes from uh, dag, which means fish, or whether it comes from another word which means grain, so I, I don't think we know. However, in the Louvre, en France, there is, it doesn't show very well, does it, but there's a sort of mermaid man with a tail and his head's up there and his arms there. So I thought, well, let's, it's about the same historical period, this uh, sculpture in the French Museum, so let's use that as a picture of Dagon, and I've turned him so that he's standing on his tail put him on his feet. Um, so I'll use that picture for Dagon. Uh, so I'd like you to imagine that this is a, a great wooden god statue thing that they have. Um, and I'd like to just think about the size because he's going to fall flat on his face. And when he falls flat on his face, presumably he's against the back wall, but when he falls flat on his face, he hits the doorway. So if you could imagine... We don't have a statue of Dagon, so it's purely imaginary. But if we had a statue here and it fell up against the door there, it'd have to be really tall, wouldn't it? Uh, so I've done a little picture there. And, and the Ark of the Covenant is quite titchy, uh, quite small. But there's Dagon, and bang, there he goes, hitting his head on the door. Uh, his head breaks off and his, his head is cut off and his hands are cut off. I didn't draw that. Um, but I just noticed that Dagon, if you had gone in there, you'd say, wow, look at Dagon, so big, uh, so strong. Oh, what's that little gold box there, about the same size as the keyboard, I guess. Not very impressive. Uh, and it, it's, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Dagon seems large and impressive, and the ark of the God of Israel the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Israel, the Lord Almighty who sits enthroned between the cherubim, seems very small and a bit silly. That's what it would have looked like. And I just want to say that that's often the way faith has to deal with things. When the Israelites were exiled into Babylon, 
They thought of Jerusalem, what a great city. When they went to Babylon, wow, it's huge. They must have thought, how small our faith is, how small our God is. But that's wrong, isn't it? It's just the way it seems. It isn't the way it is. Because although the God of Israel seems small, he is actually great. And we'll see that in a moment. So there's Dagon fallen over. Um, Dagon is a man-made god. Now, we don't have carvings of gods very much in this country. If you went to Sri Lanka, where Jess and Angel come from, then uh, there's carvings of gods and demons all over the place, aren't there? Particularly Hindu temples would have carvings of, of gods. They'd be made out of wood or maybe made out of concrete, perhaps even made out of plastic, but um, they're man-made. And here in the Temple of Dagon, we have this wooden picture of a fish-man-god thing, and we have this golden box representing the God who made everything. And actually... There is no comparison between them. The God of Israel is not made by human hands. He is the maker of everything. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, The nations say, where is your God? But we say, our God is in heaven. He's not limited to a statue. He fills the universe. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Their idols are silver and gold. They cannot speak. They cannot see. They cannot walk. They cannot touch. They're dead pieces of wood. And the psalm says, And the people who worship them become like them. Dead powerless, useless. In Isaiah 40, Isaiah mocks idol makers and says, there's your God, but make sure you nail him down properly, otherwise he'll fall over. Put some brackets so that he doesn't topple and make sure that you've painted the wood nicely so that it doesn't rot. I mean, how pathetic. But our God is... I was going to say, our God is a great big God. Uh, he's the maker of the universe. And there is no comparison between that wooden thing and the Lord. So let's, let's stop there and we'll sing something. So thank you, boys and girls. We've looked at the ark, we've looked at the Philistines, and then we'll come and, and do some um, conclusions in a moment. And this is what we're going to sing uh, about the presence I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean.
angels beheld him and came from the world of light to comfort him in the sorrows he bore for my soul that night. How marvelous, how wonderful this my song shall And my sorrows and made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How marvelous, how wonderful this my song shall shall see joy will be through the ages to sing of his love Okay, well, what we're going to do very quickly, just go through the chapter and, and say what the story was, because we've got the parts of the jigsaw puzzle. Let's just put them all in order. Uh, we'll just go back to how come the ark ended up in Philistine hands. The Israelites, including Hophni and Phinehas, wanted to beat the Philistines in battle. So Daniel took us through this a couple, few weeks ago. They, so they brought out the ark, thinking they could use it like a magic charm. And, uh, but the ark got captured at the Battle of Aphek and was taken to Ebenezer. That's what we've been reading. The, the Philistines then take it to Ashdod. That's in verse 6. Um, and then they put it... I'm sorry, am I getting this the wrong way around? Yeah, they're in, it's in Ashdod. In, they put it beside Dagon in Dagon's house. And then the next day, when they come to rise early in the morning, they find that Dagon has fallen over, uh, bang, like that, before the Ark of the Lord. Uh, so they stick him back up, put some new screws in, make sure that he's nice and secure. And the next day, he's fallen over again. But this time his head and his hands have cut off and is lying on the, the border of the door, on the threshold, uh, the threshold of the temple. Uh, and they say in verse 6, God's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. Uh, so God's, Dagon's hands have been cut off, but God's hands, the Lord's hand, is heavy. And there's a play on words because heavy is a bit like the word for glory. Uh, kabod, kabed, something like that. 
and he afflicted the people in that city with tumors. Verse 6, he brought devastation on them and afflicted the city with tumors. So not only does their God fall over, but they get really ill. And they say in verse 7, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay with us here because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. So they have a little conference and they say, what, we sh- what shall we do? And they say, oh, we'll move the city, sorry, we'll move the ark to another of our five great cities. We'll take it to Gath. So they move the ark of the God of Israel. And then the same thing happens there, that the hand of the Lord was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they all got ill as well. Um, and there's a suggestion that rats were involved with this too, sort of some sort of plague thing. And they say, what shall we do? And in verse 10, they say, oh, I know, we'll send this lethal danger to our friends down the road in Ekron. So they send it to Ekron, and the people of Ekron say, hey, what's going on here? They brought the ark of the God of Israel round to kill us and our people. Uh, and uh, so they... And it says that God's hand was heavy on them, and those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. And uh, they say, we, we need to get rid of this ark. We really do. And that's what Daniel will tell us about next week. Uh, yeah. Danger of death. God's hand was heavy. Yeah. So that, that's the story. Do you get the story? I didn't do it too quickly. You got the, the, the idea of that. So I've got three lessons. So, number one, God cares about what people really think about God on the inside. So, the, the ark was the visible presence of God, but when Hophni and Phinehas uh, wheeled out the ark to use as a magic charm, God says, I'm not having that. Hophni and Phinehas were just awful. They were somewhere between the Mafia and Jimmy Savile. They, uh, they abused the, the, the women at the, um, in the temple, and they stole stuff, and they intimidated people. They were just awful. And God would rather allow him, his army to be defeated than to let those people get away with it. God would rather appear weak and defeated than let those men get away with their insolence and irreverence as leaders of the people of God and the people of God following them. God says, I'd rather seem defeated than let those people get away with that. It was the sort of people that they were It was the way they treated God. It was their irreverence and their contempt for God. And I think there's a lesson for us that God really cares about what sort of people we are on the inside. We can do all the right things on the outside or seemingly the right things on the outside. So for us, it's not getting arcs, but turning up at church, um, doing the Christian things, seeming to do the Christian things. But God says, well, what, what's actually on the inside? 
What's on your motives? What do you think of me, says God? What sort of person are you spiritually? And I think we should tremble. Our holiness matters to God. That we should be holy, respectful, believing, reverent people before God. And of course, that's the bit that we need to deal with, isn't it? We constantly need to deal with what's happening on the inside, the attitudes we've got, the, uh, the way we, we are with God on the inside. So I think that's the first lesson. God really cares about that. He really does. And I've put there, it's gone off the bottom of the screen. Um, the Lord will judge his people. In 1 Peter it says, judgment will begin at the house of God. And it's a foolish thing for us to look out and say, oh, all these people that have this ideology and that ideology and are teaching this and promoting that and celebrating this without first looking at ourselves. Because judgment doesn't begin with the ideologies and the... Um, well, it begins with the house of God. If you're God's people, what's going on inside you? That's the first thing that matters. Second lesson, the Lord allows himself to seem defeated, but this defeat is temporary. It's by plan and permission, and it's only apparent defeat. Because the Philistines thought they'd beaten God, didn't they? They'd beaten the armies, they've taken away the Ark of the Covenant, and they got it securely there in their temple. We've won, said the Philistines. But actually God says, no, you haven't. Your God is just going to... And your people... They thought they'd won, but they hadn't really. God seemed defeated. He seemed to have been defeated by Dagon and the Philistines. But the reality is that Dagon is not in the same league as the Almighty God. And my example of it was, um, do you see... Uh, Boys and girls, so, uh, um, on Preston Park, there's little boys' football. Have you ever seen the, the football that's sort of Saturday morning? And little boys' football always amuses me because you're, you're up for older and maturer than this. But the, the ball goes one place, and all the little boys follow it round like bees following honey. And they don't pass or strategize. They and they might score a goal. And um, a, a little boy, I say, look at me, I scored a goal, I scored a goal. I'm going to be playing for Manchester City tomorrow. And you think, there is no, you're a different league. You're not, you're not ready to play for Manchester City because you scored a goal in little boys football. Please. And Dagon, he's a God. No, he isn't. He's nothing. God is in the top league where there's just him. Um, Dagon needs to be he falls out. He needs to be picked up. He needs to be restored and just touch up the paintwork that got broken. He needs to be propped up. That's the sort of God he is. But the God of the Bible picks us up. The God of the Bible restores my soul. The God of the Bible holds all things in his hand. He's the Almighty. He is 
the, uh, the Lord Almighty who sits enthroned between the cherubim. That's who he is. Dagon ends up without power. He's got no hands. And he's got no plan and purpose because his head's been cut off. That's the reality about Dagon. But our God, uh, his purposes stand forever. And who can stand against him? The Lord may seem defeated, but he isn't really. Just think of the cross where Jesus seemed defeated. And all his enemies said, if you're really the, uh, the king of Israel, come down that we may see you and believe. And they all went and wagged their heads and made fun of him. Um, Save yourself. And he seemed totally defeated, didn't he? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it only seemed that way. In fact, where God seemed to be defeated on the cross was the moment of his greatest victory. There, sin was defeated. Satan was defeated. And it's shown, of course, triumphantly in the resurrection. Uh, where God seemed to be most absent, he was actually most present. Uh, things are not always as they seem. And of course, it was by God's plan and set purpose and foreknowledge. Yeah, wicked men took him and killed him. They did. And that was wrong. But it was in God's plan and purpose. When Jesus died on the cross, it was only a temporary apparent defeat because on the third day, do you know what happened on the third day? What happened? What happened? He rose from the dead. He did, that's right. And he rose from the dead in a mighty triumph o'er his, o'er his foes. He arose from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. A great victory from what seemed like defeat. And the third lesson to think about, the presence of the Lord. Now, here's the thing. The presence of the Lord can be a life-giving blessing or a lethal danger, depending on, well, yeah, depending on what. So, we read in Exodus 29, 46, God says, I've brought them out of Egypt. I've invented all this about tabernacles and arks and priests and sacrificing animals so that I can live with them so that the presence of God can be with his people Um, Moses in Exodus 33 had this dialogue with God where he said if your presence doesn't go with us what distinguishes us from anybody else I don't want to go up if your presence does not go with us. I don't know, would you pray the same thing as you set out on your life? Lord, if you don't go with me, I don't want to go. If you're not going to be present with me, what's the point of it? It's the point of the Christian life if we don't have the presence of the Lord Jesus. Our speaker last night, I think very movingly, talked about his undergoing chemotherapy, which he said was an awful, terrible thing. He says, but the Lord is always with me. And that's a truth of Christian experience, isn't it? Sometimes more, sometimes less. But he does say, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
And for us, that, that's, that's precious, isn't it? Isn't that a precious thing? That the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But for these people in Ashdod and Ekron, um, the presence that to the Christian people is a blessing and a wonder and a comfort was death to them. Uh, it was, uh, the presence turned life into death and brought plagues and panic and fear so much that they said, we don't want this God with us. So the presence of God is not a trivial thing, is it? It depends on something. Let's just try and work out what it depends on. I think it, we should think twice before we say, Lord, come near to me. Lord, abide with me. Because we just think who we're asking to come near. The risen, glorious Jesus. The King of the universe. The Holy One of God. I mean, we're not asking, I don't know, some, oh, I can't think of an example, just some random buddy. We're asking for the king of the universe to draw near to us, the Holy One of God. We're asking to be in his presence. And, and Peter was not wrong when he realized who Jesus was and said, depart from me, I am a sinful man. Jesus said, we can... You know, that's not the end of the story, but it's right that he's a holy, awesome saviour. When, uh, when John in the book of Revelation saw Jesus, he said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now, we shouldn't lose that, should we? We shouldn't just domesticate Jesus in the same way that um, in the Narnia books, they said, Aslan is not a tame lion. Uh, this, this is who God is. Uh, he's not a magic genie there under our control for our instant gratification. I think even believing Christians can sometimes get into that mode, you know, that God is just there to help me catch the bus and stop me getting a painful neck or something like that. Uh, he is the Almighty One, isn't he? And so I, I say again, he can, his presence can be a blessing or it can be... Uh, a terrible burden, depending on. Well, I think depending in the sense that God reacts to the people who, uh, who he's with. The Hophni and Phinehas guys were irreverent. The Philistines, it, 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 they just pick up the ark and take it places. They're not supposed to do that, are they? They're supposed to put it on poles and cover it and be respectful. It's only certain people are supposed to do that. But they just plonk it here. They grab it and take it. Uh, and, um, and they put him, of all places, in the temple of Dagon. I mean, how dare they? How dare they? And their ignorance of the things of God, um, I suppose you could say they don't know any better, but they didn't even live up to what they ought to have known. God isn't like a fish. God isn't like a grain. Our Lord God is the maker of the universe. Um, and God says, I'm not going to be treated like that. I'm not going to be treated like that. I'm not going to be insulted like that. How dare you think of me in this way? We should not think that God is like, uh, what does it say, stones or 
silver or gold or things made by the hands of man. The, just think of it, the unrepentant, irreverent people of Ashdod experienced being struck by God for a few months. Imagine, if you dare, and I don't think it's a nice thing to imagine, the eternal future where people who hate and resist and have contempt for God will never be able to avoid him throughout eternity. Just think of what that would be. That's, that's the definition of hell, isn't it? To be, uh, have God's holy majesty reacting against unbelief, unrepentance forever. Something to be avoided. The people of Ashdod tried to solve the problem by getting rid of God. Push him on. Get rid of him. Move him out. But, in fact, you can't solve the problem that way. God will not be pushed about. He's everywhere. But there is a way for people like us to dwell in peace and love with this almighty, holy God. And uh, there was a clue from what we did with the, uh, uh, earlier on with the, the, uh, with the ark. Um, it's approached with reverence and awe and not without shed blood. That was the principle for the tabernacle in the Old Testament. The same thing is true in the New Testament, except we don't come to a physical structure. We come into the holy place of God. And we come through Jesus Christ, who shed his blood. There is only one way to approach the Holy One. Through Jesus Christ, the one mediator between man and God. There are not many ways. There is one way, and this is it. We come into the holy place by the blood of Jesus and the future. God said, I want to dwell with them forever. And that's what the future will be in the presence of God, in the holy city, through the blood of Jesus, with King Jesus reigning and the presence of God filling everywhere. That's what we're headed to. That's what we're headed to. And let us now be the people of the presence of God in the right way, for his name's sake. Amen. Amen.